Okay. We are continuing the Bible study that we've been doing for several weeks now that we've entitled Reasons to Believe. And last week we completed the first part or section of this Bible study and we looked at the exclusive claims of the Christian faith, how unique the Christian faith really is when you look at all of the claims that are made by it. And one of the things I just touched on in that first part that we want to revisit now in much more detail is the authenticity of the New Testament. There are all kinds of uh, challenges and criticisms that you may hear. Oh, how can you believe the Bible? It's just a book and, and all this. So tonight we're beginning part two of this whole series, Reasons to Believe, and this section we're calling The Authenticity of the New Testament. How can we be absolutely sure that the New Testament we're reading is authentic. And we're going to do the same thing after we complete this section for the Old Testament. But we want to work our way back in history, because if the New Testament is not authentic, then we might as well call it quits right there. Forget about the Old Testament if the New Testament isn't even reliable or authentic. And one of the bold claims of Christianity is that it is based on historical facts. And as I've been repeating over and over, we are not blindly believing in something that cannot be authenticated or proven. We are basing our faith on factual evidence that has been passed down to us through reliable eyewitnesses, through reliable documents. And I think um, you're going to see tonight that there is far more evidence for the person of Jesus Christ than any other historical figure throughout world history. It, it's incredible how often we hear these criticisms Oh, how can we really believe? Maybe it's just a bunch of legends and myths that were put together centuries after, you know, some man named Jesus was here, and we can't really be sure, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But I, I think you're going to be blessed tonight. I surely got blessed today just uh, researching and going through some of these things. My faith was strengthened and it made me even more confident now to, to answer this question when critics or unbelievers bring it up. Christianity is based on verifiable historical facts. And as we pointed out in the previous study, if Christ's virgin birth, his miracles, his death, and his resurrection did not actually happen, then the whole foundation of Christianity collapses. Let me, let me say that again. If Christ's birth, 
by a virgin, all of his miracles, the healings, the deliverances, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, all those things, his death, and most importantly, this coming Sunday, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. If those things did not actually happen, then our whole faith is in vain, and the whole foundation of Christianity crumbles underneath our feet. In 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or vain. You are still in your sins. In other words, if the resurrection of Christ is not historical fact, then we're, we're wasting our time. Later in the same chapter, I read this last night on the prayer line, we might as well just go eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die without any hope, without any salvation, if this is not historical fact. Furthermore, if the history of the early church and the spread of Christianity that is recorded for us in the book of Acts and then in the epistles, if that history cannot be documented, then we should believe all the critics who say the New Testament was written long after the deaths of the original apostles and it is likely filled with all kinds of mythical legends and human embellishments. However, and this you need to listen to carefully, if it can be shown that the New Testament documents are authentic, written by the traditional authors, then the evidence for Christianity is absolutely overwhelming. In this study, we're going to focus on two important aspects of the historical record of Jesus Christ. And pardon me for being redundant, but I want to keep repeating this. This is historical. We're not just believing in legends and myths and wild stories that got passed down around the campfire. These are historically proven facts that I think you're going to see tonight. We have far better record of than any other history. And we're going to look at two important things. Number one, eyewitness accounts. An eyewitness is somebody who saw it with their own eyes, heard it with their own ears. Eyewitness accounts. And then secondly, we're going to examine the reliability and the preservation of written documents concerning what those eyewitnesses saw and heard. So, the historical record of Jesus Christ, can we trust it? Can we believe it? Is there any fact to really 
back up this basis. Let's first of all look at the authenticity of the written documents, both the actual New Testament as we know it now, and other supporting documents that were written shortly after the the death and resurrection of Christ. First of all, there are abundant historical records concerning Christ and concerning the early church. The written records of Christian origins are preserved in far greater numbers and variety than those of any other personage or any other happening in the entire history of the world prior to the invention of the printing press around 1450. Let me repeat that again, because a lot of times Christians get blindsided by critics and they really don't know how to answer, and that's what we're trying to do in these Bible studies, to be equipped so that we are ready to give logical answers and reasons to people who want to know why we are Christians. The written records of the origins of Christianity, they are preserved in far greater numbers than those of any other figure in all of human history. There is no other person that is as well documented as Jesus Christ. And, of course, this is particularly important as we are looking at written records, because, of course, the printing press was invented around 1450, so any written documents prior to that were literally handwritten. Now, no one ever doubts that a man named Julius Caesar was once the emperor of Rome. But the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is incomparably superior to any historical record of Julius Caesar. And, you know, we go to school and we sit in in a history class and we've all heard about, you know, these different people down through history and likely we never even questioned the accounts that we heard. Uh, We just all take for granted that even in more recent history, uh, people like George Washington, uh, Abe Lincoln, we, we just take for granted that these people were born where they said they were born, and they did what they, the historians say they did, and they died when the historians say they died. We just accept the, the history about these people without ever really checking it out. Um, not too many people have actually gone to the birthplace of Lincoln or Washington or other historical figures to verify that he really was born there. Very few have asked, okay, show me written documents proving that he existed. We just accept it by faith when we hear these things in a history class. But the written records of the origin of Christianity far outnumber those of any other figure 
in the entire history of the world. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote the Annals of Imperial Rome around A.D. 116. Okay, so um, about 70 years or so after the death of Christ, this Roman historian wrote the Annals of Imperial Rome. Books 1 through 6 of his Annals exist today in just one single manuscript that was copied about 700 years later in A.D. 850. Now follow me here. Books 11 through 16 of his annals are in another manuscript that was written in the 11th century, almost a thousand years later. And books 7 through 10 are lost. We have only nine Greek manuscripts of the famous first century historian Josephus, and they were copied in the 10th century or later. So this criticism that, oh, well, you know, your New Testament was written hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus and the apostles, so we don't know what's true and what's made up and what was added along the way. Um, Quite the contrary, that could be the case about all these other historical records because thousands, well, hundreds, sometimes almost a thousand years passed between the time of the original manuscript and the time of the copy that we now have in hand. By contrast... This this will knock you off your chair. By contrast, we have over 5,000, yes, 5,000 handwritten copies of the Greek New Testament and at least 15,000 more copies in other languages. Nothing remotely comparable to this kind of historical record exists for any other person or for any other event in all of world history. That's over 20,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament. 5,000 in Greek and 15,000 others in various languages. Furthermore, there are almost twice that number of manuscripts. And by the way, the word manuscript means handwritten. These were literally handwritten. There are almost twice that number, about 40,000 different manuscripts of the writings of early Christians. Certain of these writers are known as the apostolic fathers or the early church fathers who wrote during the period of A.D. 90 to A.D. 160. That's just about 60 years after the death of Christ. And 
History tells us that the Apostle John, who was the last survivor of the original 12 disciples, he lived till sometime in the A.D. 90 period of time. So these were, some of these writers were contemporaries of the original apostles. So we have twice as many manuscripts of some of these early church fathers that contain numerous, abundant quotations from the New Testament. So, writing between A.D. 90 and 160, they already had the New Testament from which they were quoting. And many scholars agree that even if all of the New Testament manuscripts had been lost, it would be possible to reconstruct the New Testament altogether just from the quotations of these early Christian writers. Amazing. Amazing. Now, just to repeat, prior to 1450 and the invention of the printing press, all documents were copied by hand. There were uh, people called scribes. That was their job, just to hand copy different documents. And in the nearly 20,000, and next time somebody challenges you about this, be bold. Tell them, no, no, excuse me, history proves that we have over 20,000 bona fide handwritten copies of the New Testament from the 1st and 2nd centuries, and these, although they were all hand-copied, and there are minor discrepancies, obviously, in those 20,000 different manuscripts, that resulted either from careless copying or even, in some cases, by deliberate alterations. Because of the sheer volume of manuscripts, the origin of any variant readings or mistakes can be traced easily and the original text verified. Let let me clarify this. We don't have anything close to this for any other historical figure. 20,000 different handwritten copies of the same New Testament. And with just minor discrepancies, minor differences from copy to copy, and in a few cases where there may have been some deliberate change or alteration made, we can immediately go back and see that that's different from the large volume of similar copies of the New Testament that we have. So, abundant historical record of the New Testament. Let me move on to another point, and that's archaeological evidence. In the book of Acts, um, we have 
a pretty clear record of the first 30 to 40 years of early church history, beginning with the ascension of Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and the establishment of the church in Jerusalem, and then the spread of Christianity to Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. The writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is, of course, Luke, the physician. He was a highly educated man and a very careful historian. And it was no accident that God chose Luke to be the writer of both one of the four Gospels as well as the book of Acts, which is really the most reliable record of early church history that we have to date. And it's interesting to read the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, and this tells you something about Luke, both the writer of the Gospel and the book of Acts, as well as Luke the historian. And I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an order, excuse me, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Notice that Luke had carefully researched and investigated all of the eyewitness accounts concerning Christ from the beginning. And then his job in the gospel was to write an orderly account so that we may know the certainty of those things. And of course... In the same vein, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was very, very careful with every detail to be accurate without any kind of embellishments or additions. He gave very careful historical documentation of the spread of Christianity. And in the book of Acts, there are numerous references to places, cities, specific times, customs, events, both of the Roman, the Greek, and the Jewish worlds of that time. Now, if Luke were a careless reporter or if the book of Acts was just an accumulation of mythical legends 
and traditions written down long after those events took place, it should be full of factual mistakes. So, if the book of Acts was something written, let's say, 500 years after the fact, and by this time all kinds of legends and things were added in, we should be able to find all kinds of errors and uh, factual mistakes in the book of Acts. Just the opposite is the case. Every reference to the different cities that the apostles visited, the different customs, the different events that were taking place in those different places, all backed up by historical documentation. Um, one of the greatest of all New Testament archaeologists is a gentleman by the name of Sir William Ramsey. He undertook the most extensive studies anyone has ever done on the authenticity of the New, of the New Testament. And he actually began it as a skeptic. He was trying to disprove Christianity. So he did far-reaching, extensive research and archaeological studies on the authenticity of the New Testament. And here's what Sir William Ramsey wrote about Luke, the writer of the Gospel and the Book of Acts, and I'm quoting, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. End quote. Furthermore, descriptions found in the New Testament of Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, references to um, places around the Sea of Galilee, etc., etc., uh, various customs, political situations. There are many, many references to places, customs, um, political rulers in the New Testament. They have been confirmed over and over and over by archaeological and historical studies. And as more archaeological digs are done, as more research is done, they only confirm every single detail recorded in the New Testament. To summarize what we've been talking about thus far on the authenticity of the written documents. Not only do we have abundant documents, 20,000 copies of the New Testament, to date not a single statement in the New Testament has ever been refuted by any unquestioned scientific or historical find. That's amazing. 
if the New Testament and Christianity were a fraud, if it was just a bunch of legends and myths put together to try to start some new movement or religion, by this time, uh, 2,000 years later, we should have uncovered many of those frauds and been able to discard the whole thing as a hoax. But quite the contrary, no single statement in the New Testament has yet been refuted by archaeology or by any historical find. Now, another aspect of the New Testament that is often questioned, and again, this is something that skeptics and critics often try to raise, is the authors of the New Testament. And they often level a couple of challenges concerning just who and who wrote the New Testament. Here are two of their uh, most common challenges, and I'm quoting. Number one, quote, We cannot trust that the Gospels or Epistles were actually written by the people whose names are attached to them, end quote. And then a second quote that kind of summarizes uh, another major challenge that skeptics and critics often raise, and I'm quoting, The authors were frauds involved in a conspiracy to spread myths and legends about Christianity, end quote. So, can we really trust that Matthew was written by Matthew, that Luke was written by Luke, that all of the letters that claim to be written by Paul were really written by a man named Paul. And who were these authors? Maybe they were insane, or they were delusional, or uh, frauds. What do we know about these these authors that wrote the different parts of what we now call the New Testament. From the earliest writings of the Church Fathers, and again, these date back to around A.D. 90, just uh, a matter of 60 years or less from the time of Christ's death, and right around the time of the death of the last disciple, John, who lived um, to around A.D. 90. So, from the earliest writings of those church fathers, there has never been any question or any dispute over the authors of the four Gospels or the majority of the New Testament epistles. This wasn't even something that they questioned. There was a consensus among all of the early Christian writers that these authors were who they said they were, and they wrote what they said they wrote. And, you know, sometimes you need to use a little bit of logic. There would be no logical reason to falsify information concerning Mark or Luke, they were very unlikely candidates to be writing Gospels. They weren't even 
among the original 12 disciples. So if you were trying to start some kind of a movement, uh, it's highly likely that you would choose names of one of those 12 disciples for all four of your Gospels. Now, of course, we do have Matthew and John. They were original. Uh, They were from the original 12. But Mark and Luke were not. And it's not likely that you would want to make that up. There's no reason. There's no logic as to why you would do that. And even Matthew, he was a hated tax collector. He's not exactly the kind of front man you would want to try to start up a new religious movement. Contrast this with the fictitious names of authors that are given to some of the well-known apocryphal Gospels that were written many, many years later. Names like Philip, Peter, Mary, and James which carried a lot more weight than names like Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Also, history confirms that all of the New Testament authors were willing to suffer and to die for their convictions. And again, this is all historical fact. History tells us that all of the New Testament writers, with the exception of John, they died as martyrs. Now, men may be willing to die for an unworthy cause, which is false. Case in point, we have Islamic suicide bombers and martyrs who will blow up people and kill themselves for a cause which they may think is worthy, but no one in their right mind would ever be willing to die for a cause that they know is false. So if Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, if all these guys were involved in some kind of a hoax or conspiracy to delude the world, with some false religion and to start some new movement, uh, it's highly unlikely that every one of them would be willing to suffer the loss of all things, including their life. They all died as martyrs, and of course, you've probably heard the story of John. Uh, Tradition has it that they tried to boil him in a pot of oil, but he wouldn't cook. And so that's why they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, where it is believed that he finally died uh, as a prisoner there. Um, Men may be willing to die for an unworthy cause, which is false, but never if they know it to be so. The, The New Testament writers were not, as some critics maintain, subject to some form of mass delusion or hysteria. Here again, uh, it, it's, 
it's absurd to even think that you could get that many people all caught up in the same delusion or hysteria and go throughout the world uh, trying to spread these lies and this delusion that wasn't true. Many of the events that are described in the New Testament took place in public among crowds of people where it would be impossible for some kind of mass deception to take place. A good case in point is the feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, is one of the few miracles that is reported in all four Gospels. Feeding 5,000 people from a few loaves and a few fish be kind of hard to pull that off if it was a hoax. Surely there would be a couple of sane people in the crowd who would have denied and um, contradicted the New Testament accounts of such a miracle. Furthermore, and this is very appropriate with uh, Sunday being Resurrection Sunday, when we will be celebrating in all of our churches the glorious, triumphal resurrection of Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses, and I'm emphasizing that word, eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. And I'm reading again from 1 Corinthians 15, and let me begin at verse... 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read from verse 3 to 7. Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles." Over 500 eyewitnesses of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. 500. You know, the Bible says with the testimony of two or three witnesses, a fact can be established. <laughs> well, God went way overboard with the resurrection. He didn't want to leave any room for doubt in anyone's heart or mind, 500 people saw Jesus crucified, buried, the stone rolled over the tomb, and they saw him 
And verse 6 here indicates that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. So there was some sort of a gathering where over 500 eyewitnesses saw him risen from the dead. Again, that's kind of hard to pull off if it's just a hoax. And it is utterly absurd to think that such numbers of people could all have been deluded or just making up fictitious tales. I want to move on to another important witness or testimony to the veracity and the authenticity of the New Testament. And this you may not have heard before. And this is the witnesses of two very important church ordinances, namely water baptism and communion, or the Lord's Supper. These ordinances are practiced pretty much everywhere in Christian churches. Now, they may vary somewhat in the form uh, in which they are practiced, but generally speaking, Christian churches throughout the world practice these two ordinances commanded by Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, follow me here because I think this is an important argument. Both of these commands are recorded in the Gospels, namely in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 28, uh, Matthew records Christ's command to the disciples to go into all the world preaching, baptizing, and making disciples of all men. And likewise, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, it is recorded for us there where Jesus commanded them to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So, these were two things commanded by Christ, and they're recorded in the New Testament. But, it was years after the early church began that the New Testament was actually put in writing. And church literature confirms that the practices of baptism and the celebration of the Lord's Supper were prevalent in all of the early churches even before the New Testament had been written. So, just because of Christ's command and by the spread of his word uh, by, by mouth, and long before the Gospels were written, these two commands were being obeyed in almost all of the churches. Church literature confirms this. Again, the early church fathers, between A.D. 90 and maybe A.D. 160, they all give numerous 
documentation of the fact that water baptism and the celebration of the Lord's Supper were very prevalent in all of the early churches. Now, suppose Philip, one of the seven deacons that were chosen in Acts chapter 6 to wait on tables, and of course he was an evangelist, and he went down to Samaria and preached and all that. Suppose Philip, not one of the original twelve, suppose Philip had never heard about baptism or the Lord's Supper. Now, we know that he did know about baptism because it's very clear in Acts 8 that he baptized all of the converts in Samaria. But just for argument's sake, let's suppose he had never heard about baptism and no one had ever told him about celebrating the Lord's Supper. And 20, 30 years have now passed and many churches have sprung up because of his ministry, and suddenly, handwritten copies of the New Testament are being distributed in churches. And maybe Philip's church receives a copy of the Gospel of Matthew, or a copy of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. And he finds written there in the Gospel of Matthew, the command to baptize. And he sees in the Gospel of Matthew and also in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, uh, the ordinance of remembering the Lord's death at the communion table. He would have immediately rejected these documents as being fraudulent because they were proposing two supposed apostolic ceremonies that none of his churches had ever known about. But quite the contrary, because of Christ's teachings on baptism and the Lord's Supper, these things were prevalent in all of the churches. So when the New Testament was finally written, 20 to 30 years later, and copies began to be distributed in the churches, the believers had no problem at all with the writings in those documents because they were already doing those things in all of the churches. After the days of Christ, no writings could have ever gained acceptance as authentic in the churches if the practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper were not already being observed regularly. That's a powerful thing if you think about it. Finally, and this is where I want to bring this whole uh, section on the authenticity of the New Testament to a close. If you look at the effect that the New Testament has had on world history, it is absolutely mind-boggling. There is no other book, no other document, and of course, no other person who is talked about in that document 
namely Jesus Christ, who has had such a profound effect on the world in the past 2,000 years. The witness of almost 2,000 years now of Christianity with its tremendous impact on world history is proof that something of unique power and importance took place to get it started. As they say in science, effects must have causes. And when we look at the effect that Christ and the New Testament has had on the world, call it a hoax, call it a delusion, call it whatever you want, but you cannot deny that there's been a profound effect on the entire world. Furthermore, and this is something we have not yet looked at, and we're going to do this in a future study. We just touched on this in part one. Christ made many amazing claims, and they're recorded in the New Testament. Either they're all true, or if even one of them can be proven false, then he was either a liar, a lunatic, or delusional. One of those claims that Jesus himself made in John 8, verse 12, was, I am the light of the world. Now, we're not even going to examine the validity of his claims right now. We're just looking at the claim. I am the light of the world. Now, if some lunatic or uh, deluded man walking around in sandals and a robe in the first century made such a declaration, if it were false, it's very unlikely that the world would still be putting so much emphasis on that person 2,000 years later if he were just some crazy man. And again, we're not even examining the validity of the claim. We're just using a little bit of common sense and logic here. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. Whether he was insane or imaginary or just making up all these wild claims, we have to consider some of the effects he has had on the world. Number one, and any atheist, any skeptic, any unbeliever, if they're worth their salt, they will have to agree with every one of these statements. Number one, the world's greatest literature, the most beautiful paintings and sculptures, and the most glorious music in the world, have all been inspired by Jesus Christ. By the way, just a side note, I don't know if you know this or not, the hymn Amazing Grace is still number one bestseller of all songs ever written. Far 
Tops, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Elvis Presley, or whoever. The best literature, the best art, the best music, all inspired by Jesus Christ. Number two, most of the hospitals, most of the great educational institutions, and most of the world's charitable organizations were originally founded in his name. It's amazing if you look at the great universities in America. I had the opportunity a few years ago to visit Harvard, and you can still read the plaques that are placed at the entrances to the campus that show these great Ivy League schools, Princeton, Harvard, and on and on and on, most of these universities were founded as seminaries to train pastors and Bible ministers. They were founded in the name of Christ for the purpose of spreading the name of Christ. Jesus claimed in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth would first pass away, but his words would never pass away. That's a bold claim. And again, if he were just some crazy lunatic walking around Galilee, calling fishermen to follow him, it's not likely that his words would still be with us in such abundance today. But here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and as I mentioned, we have over 20,000 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament, reliable manuscripts from the first and second centuries about this man named Jesus Christ, the miracles he did, the death he died, and his glorious resurrection from the tomb, it's very unlikely that his words would still be with us today if he were just some lunatic or myth. He claimed heaven and earth would pass away, but his words would never pass away. And indeed, my friend, his words have been heard, read, loved, and obeyed by more people in more nations than any other man who has ever lived. There is no one like Jesus Christ. No one in history like him. And I want you to be absolutely sure of this tonight. The Jesus we believe in, the Jesus we love and proclaim and worship and follow, there is abundant historical evidence to prove that such a man lived, such a man did all the miracles that we read about in the New Testament, such a man died, and such a man was risen from the dead exactly as is recorded in the New Testament for us. Finally, 
And this is something that I had kind of forgotten about until I was working on this today. And I'm determined I'm going to start raising this point more often now with atheists and skeptics and unbelievers when I have a chance. The world's entire historical timeline is based on Jesus Christ. You've heard me tonight several times refer to dates, and to be very specific, I've told you it was A.D. 90, A.D. 160, A.D. 850, or whatever, to distinguish it from B.C. Our whole timeline is either in years B.C. or years A.D. Do you know what B.C. stands for? Before Christ. Oh, that must make the atheist mad. I'm sure they want to change that. Do you know what A.D. means? It's Latin for Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So when we write April 16, 2014, literally, it's A.D. 2014. This is the year of our Lord, 2014. And anything prior to A.D. 1 is B.C. It's before Christ. The whole history of mankind is divided by the personage of Jesus Christ. Last time I checked, our calendar isn't based on Buddha, Mohammed, Confucius, Charles Darwin, or anybody else. It's based on Jesus Christ. And everywhere you look in the historical record, there is abundant factual evidence to back up what we believe. And so, coming right around to where we started this whole series in 1 Peter 3.15, we are to be ready to give an answer, give a logical reason to anyone for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And trust me, we have abundant reason to believe. If, if we have an open-minded skeptic or an agnostic that is willing to listen, we can give them reason after reason after reason to believe in Jesus Christ. The body of facts surrounding the birth, the life, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the establishment of the early church and the spread of Christianity, it is so abundantly documented in history that it's ridiculous. It's absurd when these critics say, oh, we don't know if we can believe the New Testament. We're not sure where it came from. Yes, we are. We're absolutely sure where it came from. No other 
document. No other writing has such an abundance of copies as what we have for the New Testament. The body of facts has no rational explanation if Jesus is not actually God in human form. If Christianity is false, the existence of such a fallacy, of, of such a, a, a wide scope, it actually constitutes a greater miracle than if it were true. So, to have this claim that Christianity is a bunch of myths and legends and just collections of writings that were made up down through the years, if that storyline is true, and of course we know it's not, but if that storyline is true and therefore Christianity is false, <laughs> The widespread nature of Christianity and its influence on the world, even today, it, it constitutes a greater miracle than the one that we are claiming. And it, it makes logical, rational sense to believe the historical record that there really was a Jesus of Nazareth documented in the four Gospels by authors that are known to be the authors of those Gospels and other writings that were added to the Gospels, the book of Acts and the epistles, and of course, ultimately, the book of Revelation written by John. All of these pieces came together in one book called the New Testament. And again, we have over 20,000 handwritten copies of that New Testament and numerous archaeological finds that go along with those copies of the New Testament, which, as we already stated, are by and large one and the same. A few little trivial differences from one handwritten copy to the next, but the basic storyline of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies, performing miracles, signs, and wonders, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, three days later, ascending to heaven and pouring out the Holy Spirit and starting this great worldwide movement that we call Christianity. It's all abundantly documented in our historical records. There's no one in all of human history as well documented as Jesus Christ no one in all of history who has had the effect on the world as Jesus Christ. And so, with absolute confidence, when we read our New Testament, 
we can know that what we're reading is authentic, it's reliable, and by the way, we haven't even gotten into talking about whether or not these are the God-inspired scriptures. We're just talking about historical documentation. The New Testament is a very well-documented writing from the first century. And it's absurd to believe that so many copies would, would have been written of some hoax, delusion, or hysterical movement that would have died out centuries ago. But, of course, we know that it is divinely inspired, and that's something that we'll look at in a future study. But suffice it to say tonight, the New Testament is authentic. It was written by the people that it says were its writers, and we can trust every gospel, every epistle, every part of the New Testament as accurate and authentic, and there's no archaeology, there's no science, and there's no history that refutes any part of the New Testament. And next time, we're going to go even further back in history, and we're going to talk about the authenticity of the Old Testament. That's something we haven't even talked about yet, and that's a whole different storyline, because the Jews were the guardians of the Old Testament scriptures. And I think we'll see that it's very well documented and it was generally agreed upon by all of the Jewish leaders and scholars that what we call the Old Testament was the same collection of writings of their day. So, praise the Lord that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, our faith is not in vain. We are not yet in our sins because he is who he said he is and he did what he said he came to do. And that was to seek and to save the lost. Let's close in a word of prayer tonight. Father, I thank you for the abundance of historical evidence, documentation, and record that we have for our faith in Jesus Christ. We are not blindly believing in some lunatic that walked around Galilee 2,000 years ago. There's abundant historical evidence, far superior to evidence we have for any other personage in human history, we have abundant documentation that the New Testament we read is accurate, it's authentic, and it's reliable. God, I thank you that we can put our trust in Jesus Christ, that we can know that we know that we know that he is who he said he is, and he came to do exactly what you sent him to do, to seek and to save the lost. And God, as we 
are remembering his death, burial, and resurrection, especially this week, God, we are so happy to proclaim that he is risen, he is risen indeed, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. We give all praise and all glory and honor to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And now, Father, bless all those participating in this Bible study. Let this word strengthen and encourage each one of our hearts and our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.